Damien Brown is a Heineken Cup winner with Leinster. However, since retirement from professional rugby, Damien has become one of the world's foremost extreme adventurers, undertaking some of the most demanding physical and mental challenges on the planet, including the 257-kilometer Sahara Desert Ultramarathon, the Marathon de Sables, He's rode solo and unsupported 5,000 kilometers across the Atlantic Ocean. And in 2012, Damien became the first man to row unsupported across the Atlantic, which took him 112 days to complete. Damien Brown, absolutely honored to have you here on the Modern Warrior podcast. And what a warrior you are. My goodness, the amount of uh, challenges and feats that you have taken on and overcome personally and uh, physically and mentally has inspired me as much as so many people in the world. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation with you to dive deeper into Mm. who Damien Brown is and what your deep roots consist of. And that's where I'd like to start because I know that your podcast is titled as such. Mm. The Deep Roots Podcast. And I know you tell the story and you you start the story from when you were 17 and Mm. where you weren't starting with the the rugby team because you were unfit and Mm -hmm. you were still this this big man who you felt as if you should be starting because you had all the capabilities but Mm. didn't have the drive to to, to move forward. Mm. But if you go back before 17, if you go deeper into the roots, were there some influences back there that you feel inspired you to become the man you later became? Uh, I looked up to my father uh, hugely. Um, he was um, a golfer and just a, a, a good amateur golfer back then. And I used to play golf with him and, you know, we used to, I'm the oldest of three. And um, he used to take me everywhere with him golfing, you know. So I was caddying at first and then uh, started playing uh, alongside him. And, uh, you know, I admired how good he was. Um, you know, you, you look up to your father anyway, clearly, you know, he plays a, an incredibly important role in um, his children's lives. So, yeah, I was, he was a huge um he was a huge um, effect on me, I suppose, and he modeled some values that I see in myself today. He had an um, amazing work ethic. So he, I suppose nowadays he'd be called an entrepreneur. Back then he was just a businessman, you know, and he set up um, two or three businesses around Galway, one of them in the, the driving range, which is the, the golf driving range out in Salt Hill. And uh, he built that, um, and I used to work out there, you know, during the summers, and um, that was 10 to 10, you know, and I, I have distinct memories of going out there after storms and um, seeing the fences, like, buckled by the storm and him, you know, going through that hole. Like, not that I knew at the time, but when I think back, like, you know, that must have been hugely difficult for him and obviously costly for the business and rebuilding the fences and just constantly there at, like, we'd be there some nights during the summer picking golf balls at till 11 o'clock at night, you know, um, having them all into the um, dispenser for the next morning. 
um, and he'd be there then the next morning at nine o'clock or whatever to open up and it's just this um, seven days a week, you know. And I think that work ethic, you know, rubbed off on me. Um, and I, I, when I, you know, when I reflect on, you know, where some of my values are come from, and that's a really important value to me, and it definitely came from him. Mm-hmm. This was uh, at an early age where you instilled your your father's work ethic, or his work work ethic became a huge influence for you in your life. But as you fast forward then onto seventeen, did you sort of lose that? work ethic as you were being dropped from the rugby team and as you mentioned before you were overweight mm. what what happened in that well i don't period? know i don't know if i i lost i don't know if i had it to lose it was modeled to me so i suppose it seeps into you you know like often i think it's when people hit their late 30s and 40s and you'll often hear them say from time to time just i'm turning into my father like you know it'll see it's only it's not till later in life you actually see the those real deep effects of um, admiration coming through, admiration of a modeled value, I feel. So um, that's not to say that I wasn't, um, there wasn't, um, you know, problem, not problems is the wrong word, but I, I, you know, when I was 17, I was like heavily overweight and I was, um, I just hadn't found anything really to ignite my, um, the energy reserves we all have within us. And it wasn't until I, I saw a, um, I saw the reality of the situation that I was living and I felt through seeing that clearly, I felt those emotions that it brought up, emotions of disappointment and embarrassment. You know, when I think when you put yourself in somebody else's, well, this was my experience. I put myself in another person's shoes, seeing me as I was at that time. I, f- I felt embarrassed by that vision um, because I, I knew there was more in me and I was... Um, I wasn't living up to whatever potential I had at that time, you know. I was lazy and unfit and had a poor lifestyle and all of those things um, led to uh, feeling shame and shame is a very powerful emotion. But um, how you choose to use that um, is um, your choice. And I somehow, I, I don't know how I was able to funnel all of those negative emotions into a um, a positive um, uh, decision and that was just uh, well like and it's still a question I ask myself today um, what are you going to do about it you know I was able to say okay you are unfit um, you should be doing better so what are you going to do about it and I think when I was able to or however I was able to ask that question of myself um, I was at a point where I was just sick sick of the situation i was in i was tired i was exhausted i was i was sick of waiting for somebody else to do it for me so um you know asking that question i was like well i'll go and get fish you know and and taking that responsibility for one thing within my life was um was the decision that changed the course of my life did your father step in at any point over those years trying to drive you on trying to push you forward trying to encourage you and inspire you to make these moves and were you quite resistant to that not, not really like so my father was never really a a rugby 
Um, he played one game of rugby ever. And um, for Corinthian thirds, when he first moved to go, he's from Atlone originally. And he broke his collarbone and <laughs> never played again. So, um, stick yeah. Stick, he's very much, uh, you know, uh, you know, very much um, golf was his thing. So when we were go- going up to Galwegians, it wasn't until, uh, which was only about 10 minutes from the home place, he, you know, he didn't have any connection with the place, you know. So it was, it was of our own volition. And when I say our own, because my brother followed me up and all our neighbors used to kind of walk up the road. So we were, it was more um, been led by what the older kids in the neighborhood were doing when I saw everyone going up, you know, it was kind of like, well, let's go and check that out. So, um, and uh, so he, he wouldn't have had a huge idea of what was happening in the rugby club if I was playing well or not, you know. And it wasn't until I, um, I you know, I had made that decision that I talked about and gotten fit and then started like completely turned around my rugby performance and started to be rewarded in terms of selections for. Then he started to kind of go, oh, I, you know, I'm going to support him here. And and then she couldn't keep him away from games, you know. <laughs> so uh, he was kind of, he came into rugby because of, um because of my uh, progression within the ranks of rugby. Brilliant. You uh, you talk about that period where you were stuck when you were 17, mm. and uh, perhaps that's the best word for it. Mm. And I was watching your, your documentary then as well, the 112 days of, of rowing from America to Ireland, and you got stuck on the way. To Ireland. <laughs> I did many times. <laughs> uh, you got stuck, yes. And so there was two situations there in your life. When you were 17, you were stuck, you were unfit, you were perhaps unhealthy and you weren't being selected for the rugby club. You weren't able to progress or move forward in your life. Mm. And then you had this epic voyage, this epic challenge of getting from America to Ireland, rowing 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 hours a day. Mm. Some days getting nowhere, stuck in one spot, sometimes going backwards. So how did the experience from the past begin to influence the experiences you had in the in the water mm. during that period of time? Because I know that was, watching the documentary, that seemed like one of the greatest challenges you had over that 112 days. Mm. Oh, it was, it was soul-destroyingly difficult. Like, I can't, I accessed um states of negativity and despair that were um yeah were highly challenging so i i I see that you know that decision that that 17 year old thankfully made for himself um as the genesis of my journey and then the the next 30 nights that 17 year old just ran laps around the pitch and um and was uh hugely rewarded from those laps like in none of those hardly one step of every one of those laps i did over those 30 nights was easy you know there was nothing but um weakness and resistance inside me but I persevered every night and I went a little bit further and a little bit further and a little bit further. Um, And that was when I made the connection between the action and the reward, the action of doing something meaningful that is challenging and hard and the reward of that. So um, when um, when I came out the other end of those 30 days, I had like, 
you know, I, I was very, um, I'm sure you're aware of um, a lot of like neuroscience now is very popular, right? So I, I was I was at an age where I was primed for neuroplasticity. So I wired within to myself um, some some uh, mindsets, beliefs, and um, behaviors that are still to this day the bedrock of what I work off, right? Um, because um, the act of taking responsibility for something within my life that was important to me, the commitment um, to work towards that, the work itself, literally every step been difficult, the persevering through that hard work, um, that, that's, that, that's, those things are what I know from that day and they've helped me navigate whatever comes at me whatever situation comes at me through professional rugby into extreme adventures. So, um, okay, I've deepened my understanding and I've broadened it and all that, but they are the foundation. Um, so um, what one thing I do know is how to work through adversity and to um, concentrate on what's within my control in those moments of deep um, negativity and how to... Um, find the way through them, find the way through them. Like I did every night, I found the way through my resistance. I found the way through the discomfort every night on those, on that pitch. So um, it's the same, only, you know, um, deep and, and further than scaled capacities, you know, 20 odd years later. Mm -hmm. And then it's transferred onto a boat in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. Where you're stuck. So, Not just for a couple of hours, but oh, days and days. They like so took 112 days, right? And the first half was literally, you know, we have milestones, and I got to halfway mark on day 44, and um, it took me 68 days to complete the second half, and that was because I just got very unlucky with weather systems. Um, and uh, an ocean rowing boat is most manipulated by the wind. It's very vulnerable to wind because it has a lot of, they say, windage. It has a lot of surface area that can be um, uh, captured by the wind and manipulated. So when I was having a lot of uh, days where um, the wind was in my face to some degree, uh, that meant that um, the minute I stopped rowing, I was probably going to go backwards. And there was days where I'd put in, you know, I'd say the first five, six, seven strokes I'd be looking at a little monitor on the um, deck, uh, which would tell me my speed over ground, what speed the boat was going. And if I didn't see that go above like 1.7, 1.8 knots in those first six, seven strokes, I knew that it was a day where the minute I stop here, I'm going backwards, you know, and the less speed I was able to get, the more, um, uh, the more psychologically different difficult it became because that meant that I'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm really only I mightn't even make any ground today and all of this energy is and all of this effort that I'm putting in now in the in the bigger scale of things is for nothing you know and and that's you know that's fine for a couple hours maybe a couple of days if you have capacities but try to do that for 60 days <laughs> and there's just moments where you know clearly that will crush you, you know. Um, and then, yeah, it was just about <clears throat> bringing my mind. So 
whenever we find ourselves in these negative states, we, we can change that as long as we're aware of the situation. So it was about moving my mind out of the negative state. And the best way I found to do that is a concentrating on an action that is within your specific part of an action that's within your control. So I had, um, and the way to trigger that in your mind is to have some sort of mental anchor or mental reset. So I had three mental anchors written on the, my cabin wall. Um, is this quality work? Is my effort honest? And am I concentrating on an action within my control? And they're, I call them mental anchors because they're, um, they're a sentence or a question in this case that anchors your mind in the storm of negativity and the wildness and the craziness of this, you know, um, turmoil that you're going to through inside. And it leads, that anchor leads you, the question leads you to a control of something, an action that's within your control. And as I said, when you concentrate on an action within your control, it brings you to the present moment. It brings you to a state, a neutralized state, a depressurized mental state. And that's what it was. It was just a battle through all those moments of, you know, going into these difficult mental and emotional states and then bringing myself out of them and continually do that because you will eventually drift out of them. You know, your constant, your mind is just, it will just drift. So you'll come out of it, you'll feel some sort of negativity, you'll feel yourself focusing on an outcome that's not within your control, how long's left, how many miles have I just done, how many miles have I done in the last hour, how many miles am I trying, none of that, you can't control any of that, you can just control this very moment that you're living. So concentrate on the action that's within your control in this very moment and dial in that concentration and get into a trance between the intention and the effort and the, and the act. Um, and then that's that added up. All of those moments added up will lead to the outcome you want. But the outcome itself is outside your control. So that's, that's what it was. Now, um, it doesn't mean, you know, even if you know the processes and all that, it doesn't mean they're easy, you know. Firstly, you have to become aware and it's very hard to become aware of what your mind is saying to yourself when you're in these states of negativity, you know, when you're in these um, stress responses. What were the negative thoughts and voices that would have come up? Doubt, fear, doubt, um, fear of um, not succeeding. The doubts around it all, have I, you know, have I got the capacities to continually move this boat? Am I going to get to Ireland? Um, time, you know, we spoke a little bit beforehand, you know, I have a family at home and the the conversation around that was this is going to take kind of 60 days. We're going for 55, I'm thinking worse still take 60, 65 and then you know, when Gussie was evacuated, yeah, that changed and then I got this really bad weather. So, you know, I, I'm I'm having conversations with Roselle, my partner, nearly every day. And I'm like, you know, some of those days are, you know, she's going through a hard time at home. Um, she doesn't have much support, so she has to vent to me. Um, and that's absolutely fair. I've left her in that situation. I'm willing to take that. I accept it. Uh, and then I'm also have to tell her, well, do you know, remember I said it was going to be 70 days, looking more like 80 now. And every day that's in my head, you know, like that fucking hell, this is going to take longer and longer. And I'm my I'm not out there for a jolly. I'm out there to perform physically and mentally and to push myself. So <clears throat> the longer it takes, the more agitation and frustration and anger that builds up around that, you know. And then you've got that at home as well, where like, 
you realize that there's a lot of guilt um, for leaving and a lot of pressure around that to get home as fast as you can, not just, you know, and my pressure that I put on myself, but also I feel pressure to get home and to help and to be played a role that is important and the responsibility I have. So you can imagine all of those things, this concoction of like, you know, deep emotions, um, you know, can get on top of you easily. Mm. It's just a matter of gripping the gripping the oar and <clears throat> feeling the oar getting into the water and just that stroke that's 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 all but to the best of your ability you know mm-hmm. yeah so you know i i'm the achievements are important to me but they're they're not the most important thing the most important thing is how i behave in that cauldron so i keep my standards high um i live to those standards with the stress with everything that i'm going through and I um, I live through my values that are really important to me. Um, honesty, discipline, work ethic, courage, um, integrity, honor. So I, I behave in a way when nobody is around, nobody can see, nobody, nobody will ever know if I didn't get up at 3 a.m. when the alarm went off, if I put it off for 10 minutes, but I'll fucking know. So... When you're under those enormous stresses um, and you're battling through that and you see yourself morning after morning after morning, you, like you, I always surprise myself out there that I get up with the minute that alarm goes off and I go through my routine. That's the most important thing at the end of the day. It's not the actual achievement. It's that I lived those standards and, the, and I embodied the values that are important to me while I was out there. And and that's the thing that is extraordinarily fulfilling when you come through it. That's the reward that is the opposite to instant gratification. It's this deep reward that like as time passes afterwards, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and you look on it more fondly, you know. It's like this um, centrifugal force like that's in your kind of just, it's burning and bubbling and it almost gives you energy, more energy, a little bit more energy, a little bit more energy. Um, so yeah, so that I was able to, um, when things got really hard and difficult or as they often were, it was just to, um, guard those two things or at least fight for them. There's some days clearly we're not machines, we're humans, right? You're going to fall down you're going to have a bad day or you're going to have a bad two hours on the oars, but it's holding yourself accountable to those standards. You, nobody else, you holding yourself accountable to your standards uh, during that and then lifting yourself back up. And it was a lot of that, you know, at the lift and the, the analogy I often, I think I said it on the podcast a few times, I had to reach into myself, grab myself by the scruff of the neck and pull myself out of those states because it's very easy. I mean, we're almost wired on some level to be, you know, to to play the victim, to, you know, it's easy to be, to, to self-pity. Oh, woe is me. This is so hard. But I think it's the biggest fucking waste of time to self-pity. And that's what I'd say to myself. So it's those internal conversations were going on a lot out there. Mm. There were times where the negativity did take a tight grip and oh. you, you, you lost it. Oh, for sure. Like, um, it's it's a battle. You know, my default state was frustration, agitation, just trying to move this boat into this, um, against this ocean. And um, I... And it, and often there was deeper dives into dispiritment and disillusionment because you're putting 
you're trying, you're you're putting your you're you're putting every sinew of muscle, every square inch of every cell inside you to do your best and pull the best stroke you can at every moment. And when that's not rewarded, no matter who you are, that's gonna hurt like, you know, you're trying, you're honestly trying your hardest and you get your legs swept from under you. Oh yeah, that was great 12 hours today. You you made a mile or, you know, a good shift there. You made 0.6 of a nautical mile for two hours of fucking hard graft. And it, it just, it can, it can suffocate you a little bit and get on top of you, you know. Um, and it's just about pulling yourself out of those states, you know, you know, because it doesn't serve the, what's the goal here is to get across. It doesn't serve me in any way to stay in those states. It doesn't serve me to fucking give the woe is me. This is so hard. You know, often the conversation I would have with myself is like, you fucking chose this. You wanted this. Now get the fucking work and get it done, you know. Um, so, yeah, there was, there was a huge amount of um, um, conversation going on inside me. And, and like struggle, you know, real deep struggle fighting against my weak side, my shadow that's very manipulative and um, and uh, sometimes winning overall, I would say, you know, winning that fight, but sometimes the shadow gets on top of you, you know, and um, and again, it's just recognizing that after a certain period, sometimes longer than others and uh, and pulling yourself out of that. Yeah, as uh, as I understand, you didn't start this journey on your own. You'd, you'd go see with you for... 12 days or 13 days and yeah. had to be evacuated, which is, uh, which was shown in the documentary. And <clears throat> I, I felt so, uh, so sorry for, for Gussie, but mm. I also felt uh, a huge amount of sympathy towards you as well, because <laughs> you're left in this boat on your own now yeah. to take this journey on. And there was a clip of you on the documentary where you were speaking into the phone and mm. telling them how you were going to miss him or wouldn't be the same without him. And you could see the emotion on your face and, mm. From that point on, did the journey become very lonely for you? Was loneliness uh, another barrier that you had to overcome that on that trip? A little bit. Um, you know, I the first expedition I've ever been on where I did feel like levels of loneliness. Um, and it's because I had something to miss. You know, for the first time I had a family at home and, uh, you know, they were waiting for me. Um, and they wanted me home as soon as possible. So the fact that I, I couldn't achieve that, whatever I did, I wasn't the major player in the decision, the ocean. <laughs> she's a beast. She is moody and she is a powerful and she's scary. Um, and I just had to do my best against her and stay in the fight and keep working forward and keep picking myself up when she knocked me down. But it meant that you know, the slower it got, the harder that got, you know. Um, the 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 emotions around family were particularly guilt and loneliness, you know. Um, and they're, again, they're <laughs> pretty, um, pretty strong emotions. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the thing about a rolling ocean is you don't have much choice, you know. <laughs> so you got to just do your best every day. And I was never going to give up. I was going to, whatever, if it killed me, I was going to get that boat to the other side. So, um, so it was going to take as long as it could take. But that didn't mean, you know, that there, was, uh, there wasn't um, numerous days of deep kind of um, struggle around those emotions that came up around family. 
this wasn't the the first expedition you've been on. You've been on several before that. Mm. And all these expeditions take a lot of time in terms of preparation and actually going through the whole process of the achievement or the or the goal that's mm. at the end of it. Sometimes not achieving it, such as your experience on, on Everest. Mm. But again, within all that, there's a massive amount of sacrifice to be made, especially when you've got a wife and kid and now two kids mm. at home. Why is it worth that sacrifice? Because I have one opportunity. There's no dress rehearsal. And it's about living authentically and courageously and wholeheartedly. It's about living life with my whole heart. And these are things um, that express who I am. They give me an opportunity to... Um, to show the world what I believe I am as a person and to air certain um, behaviors and values that are in modern day society particularly difficult to access. So I was very lucky to have a professional rugby player, a professional rugby career. And what I discovered in that is that there, um, there's so much more inside us all. We just have to push for it. We have to strive to um, access that more that is within us. And um, the only way to do that is by throwing yourself into the fire and um, through difficulty and toil and struggle and striving and intention to um, be better and to, um, yeah, to live towards what's important for you. So these things are deeply important so that I make the most of the time I have until I'm put in the ground. Um, and uh, so that would be something I would deem as like a self-mastery or self-realization. And why is that important? Because it's not just about me. You know, me realizing my potential has uh, effects on others. It has effects on people closest to me. Just again, like my dad modeling work ethic. If I go after these things, if I live authentically, if I live courageously, if I live wholeheartedly, well, there's a decent um, chance that my kids will live that way and experience life on this extraordinary um, plane of existence. Um, and if other people are watching from afar, now we have that capacity, right? At the touch of our fingers, we can share our experience of that way of living so it can touch somebody else and then they can, um, it can elicit positive energy within them to do something good or better or make a change within their life. So you're you're hitting your own internal world and you're you're forging that and you're harmonizing that and you're making it better. So there's a chance that you're touching the people around you in some way that are closest to you. And then the chance you're touching those people who are a little bit further away. And if you get all of those three um it's a very purposeful thing. It's a very meaningful thing. And I think um, there is no doubt that you leave the world a little bit better. We're all going to leave the world. So um, here's my chance and I'm going to do my best to, um, to uh, try to achieve that. Yeah. 
never underestimate the impact you make on one person because that person has people in their exactly. life as well. And yeah. those people have people in their life and mm. so on and so it's forth. It's this so radiating kind of impact that yeah. can, and, and that's just from you doing what you love and living through your full heart. Um, and that, that, that tread, that deep kind of silent um, human communication is extraordinarily powerful. Like words, words are powerful, but I think actions um, can have a deep impact on people that words can really struggle to have. And uh, that's why I believe in in, um, in uh, trying to share what I do. Mm. The the uh, <coughs> expedition in the boat in the in the ocean and what you're doing there was almost having a ripple effect onto the people in the world. And that was coming true in your, on your podcast as you were on the boat as well and people tuning into that. And I was listening to some myself and you could sense the emotion and sometimes the frustration and sometimes mm. the, the joy and then the disappointment and all these things that were going through your, through your head um, during, that, during that journey. And then as well, we talked about you being stuck in, in a situation where you couldn't move forward, but you also had a couple of storms to contend with you know the <laughs> yes. and and one extreme one where you capsized a couple <clears throat> of times yeah i capsized three times and so three times in five hours in a storm that was forecast the last 20 hours so we i know these things are coming because i have a weather router and he gives us a five-day forecast so from about you know, it starts to dial in on around day three out from when it's arriving. And then by day two, excuse me, I can see that the um, there's a serious uh, weather front coming in. And in fact, it was so serious, it was just downgraded from a hurricane 24 hours before it hit me. So I know this is coming. So I'm prepared. I've locked down the boat. Um, what that means is, you know, I've tied everything down that I felt was needed um, to be tied down. I put out a, a thing called the power anchor, which is like a, a big parachute. And it sits uh, out the front of the boat under the water, attached to the boat clearly. And it's an anchor you use when the sea is too deep to use a traditional ground anchor, which at that point it was, you know, you're talking 3,000 meters or so. Um, and that, like that holds about two tons of water. And that's meant to keep you... Uh, two things is meant to keep you in line with the wind and the waves. So the um, the ferocity of the waves that are coming at you and the wind hit the nose of the boat rather than the side of the boat. So that lessens the chance of capsizing, and it's not it's meant to stop you capsizing basically. And um, and in three hours, uh, sorry, in five hours after that first um, after the start of that storm, I capsized three times. So I was completely mentally destabilized because my belief was uh, this this um, cabin is whatever comes away this cabin is safe you know i can crawl in there lock the hatches and just hang on for my life but even if it's a hurricane i'm safe and all of a sudden that belief was um was uh, compromised it was eroded a little bit because now i'm not safe i've capsized three times that's not meant to happen and I've had some water come into the cabin as well. So I'd like, almost like somebody threw a small bucket of water in and I, I didn't know where that was coming from. So that was very, the next 15 hours were extraordinarily difficult. Um, the longest hours of my life. I was just waiting for that Ford capsize, like literally was lying there, 
powerless to what was happening around me, just waiting in a state of anticipation. And what I learned was that it's the, it's actually the state, it's the anticipation that will kill you. It's not the actual act. It's not the cap. The, the capsize is a relief when it comes. It's lying there in that state of anticipation that will, um, it, that's where your mind is at its most vulnerable. And the anticipation is very, um, it's full of fear. Um, anticipation of an event that might be painful, right? Might be uncomfortable. Um, and I was just listening while I lay there listening for a, a certain noise. So at, when the waves break, the ones that will capsize you, they break at a certain distance from the boat. And then the, the top of the break, it actually trundles along the top of the ocean and it hisses. So you hear this hissing coming and when it does, it put out all four limbs, legs and arms and you just brace on the side of the cabin waiting for that capsize. So I was just waiting for that 15 hours and it was just the longest hours of my life, like just waiting for this thing to come, waiting for the hiss, bracing myself when it did, but they never capsized, but it, it didn't mean that they weren't extraordinarily difficult because you're completely powerless. Like, you know, there's nothing you can do. You can't go outside, it's too dangerous. You have to stay in this little cabin and it's compromised. And I'm thinking if I capsize again, well, so much stuff was going wrong. Like I'm not meant to bloody capsize anyways. It is if I capsize, the boat mightn't self-right. If it doesn't self-right and there's water getting in, I'm in a fucking watery grave here, like coffin, you know? So you're just all of this stuff when the fear is like, you know, fear is a um, very sinister and um, corrosive emotion. And when it's in your mind, the stories, it will dredge up the um, possible outcomes it will dredge up are not good. <laughs> They're never good. So yeah, you have to deal with all that stuff. And it was very difficult. I found it extraordinarily difficult to manage my mind in that state for that 15 hours. Can you talk us through the actual process of a, of a capsize? Because I've heard you talking about it a couple of times. It's not to sound arrogant, but it almost sounds like a trip in the street. You know, yeah. the, the bold capsize, but right. th that was it. My interpretation of a capsize before this is boat capsizes, you're fucked. That yeah. boat's sinking or that boat's done. Yeah. So can you talk us through that? And So an ocean rowing happens? boat, sorry, yeah, excuse me. An ocean <laughs> rowing boat is about, well, mine was, this one was six meters yeah. long, long. And then on either side, you have two cabins, right? One of them is your main living cabin and where the bed is and all your electrics. And, and the other one is just for storage. But the reason I mentioned that is because they are, when they're sealed, they're air pockets, so they're airtight, right? So when the boat, like, what will happen is um, you, you you end up in a position they call beam on, which is sideways onto the wave. And the boat will go up the face of the wave. And normally it will just flip over the top. I keep hitting that thing. It'll normally just flip over the top of the wave. But when the, um, if you're beam on, which you will be when you're not rowing, uh, and sometimes even when you are. But anyway, it'll just it'll just go over the, the, the um the peak of the wave but what happens is when there's a storm the winds are so strong they pick up the waves and at the top of the waves they push over the break like like a classic big wave surfing that we see you know so the top of that wave gets pushed over and when the boat is going up the face if you're just on the wrong part of the face you'll end up under the break in a storm and it's that break that will hit the side of the cabin and it'll trun it'll it'll put the boat either in this case, 360 degrees. Um, 
But because all the weight is on the bottom of the boat, all the ball, they call it ballast, you know, and sometimes it's just bottles of water, water weight. Um, you'll have about between 50 and 150 kilos, depending on the boat, underneath. When that goes on top and you have the two air pockets, which are the cabins on the bottom, it'll just flip back. So it takes, depending on the, the ferocity of the wave and all that, but it takes like seven to kind of 10 seconds for it to kind of go the full 360 degrees and you're just in there. It's a bit like I imagine uh, been in the, the turn of a washing machine, you know. So you kind of end up um, rolling onto the side of the cabin and then you kind of fall onto the roof and then all of the bedding falls on top of you and all of the, there's little, um, um, what would you call them, little um, uh, pockets of little containers of water um, that when you step into the footwell, it, it drains into those things um, and then all that comes on top of you as well. And then you have two nets either side that hold your daily stuff. Uh, like things like uh, charts and uh, sat phones and they're full of stuff anyway and all of that comes on top of you and then you end up kind of going the whole way around um, and you, you kind of, yeah, the whole cabin then is, you know, a mess basically and yeah, it's dirty and it's wet because there's, you know, in the footwell you drag in stuff every day and bits of rubber and all that sort of stuff. So it's, yeah, it's a bit of a mess but that's, you get the picture, that's the capsize. And you got beaten up? I got beaten up in my first ocean row, uh, um, I had a capsize uh, and exactly how I explained to you going up the face I was fast asleep in the cabin and a um, the power of the wave the break of the wave whatever way it was so powerful when it hit the side of the cabin it lifted me up off my sleep I was asleep I didn't know anything about this until it lifted me up and just threw me face first into the side of the cabin like so that was the first um the first inclination, the first moment of consciousness I knew I was awake was pain. Pain, pain woke me up basically. Um, this is the, this is your first rope. This is yeah, not the hundred no. odd days. This is just to put it into context for yeah, the. That's exactly it. Yeah, day fourteen, craziest day of my life. Um, so yeah, um, this is your first ever capsize as well. First ever capsize, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. some some entry. Um, it was it was yeah it was it was mad like because it, it's a very strange um, you know it's a very strange way to be woken up by this shock of pain through your face, and I was trying to you know you're you're straight into instinctual kind of action and you're trying to decipher what's going on as the boat's going upside down and the thing that triggered it for me actually was the feel of blood on my face and the taste of blood on my lips because I'm you know from rugby you get cut regularly enough around your eyes um so I had an under I I, I recognized that I had an understanding what that felt like and tastes like blood is really warm you know on your skin and that was the thing I realized oh you split your head open during a capsize so at some point during the 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 act of capsizing um yeah crazy and then uh, you know that day like um you know sorted out the cabin went outside the whole deck was covered in water like absolutely full up to the top so I had a bit of a panic moment going I'm like what's going on I'm sinking you know because again I was only I was only 14 days into my ocean rowing career, you know, so you're not very au fait with everything. And thankfully it wasn't, but uh, I just had to pump all that water off. And some of the 
the we have a ground anchor on board and a sea raft. They were half hanging out, so I had to pull them back in. And I'm kind of, I've got the deck pumped off, and I've you know, I know remember now I'm in seven, eight, nine, ten meter waves, like going up them at the top, and I'm just sitting there as we were kind of going up these big waves, and uh, I hear this noise. And you're hyper vigilant and hyper aware and hypersensitive when you're out there, like anything new when you're on it, like a shot, you know, and I heard this noise and it wasn't familiar. So I look over straight away to my right. I see a dorsal fin swimming towards the boat. I was like, fuck, is that a dolphin? And sure enough, it wasn't a dolphin. It was a whale, this adolescent little whale. I swam up to the boat and did um, four or five rotations of the boat. And on its fourth rotation, it came up to my right-hand side and it stuck its left eye up and made eye contact with me. <laughs> I was like, fucking hell. You know, I, I just didn't think anyone, I was like, nobody's ever going to believe that's happened. Like, I, I mean, I, it was mad. Like, literally, I felt like it was looking into my soul. I felt like it knew everything about the world and existence, you know, just in this look that it gave me. You know, it, like, it had this deep wisdom about the planet. I mean, I don't even know if that makes sense, but that's that's just what I, I, I still feel about it, you know. It was an extraordinary experience. And then it swam around the boat again, the top back of the boat, and then kind of came up the gunnel, up the side of the boat. And I would have had the wherewithal, I would have been able to kind of reach out and touch it. And then I never saw it again. At least I, I don't think I did. There was, there was a very stressful day. Um, is this whilst you're still in the storm or is this yeah, the storm? No, still in the storm, trying to row that day, trying to fix the steering. Um, and I was, you know, you'd be obviously said, oh, you're hyper aware. And so I'm looking at everything, my head's on a swivel. And there was a couple of times I felt like I could see the dorsal fin tracking the boat way back. And I was like, maybe it's trying to tell you something or maybe it's your you know, it's, 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 it's guarding you in some way, or it's, you know, I don't know, you again, coming back to the stories we tell ourselves, but this is what I was feeling. I don't even know if it was that, and I was imagining it, but yeah, that was, that was an extraordinary day. Is that the closest you've ever felt to death or has that been through another experience? <clears throat> well, I don't know if I've ever felt very close to death. Like later on that day, I suppose I, I, I didn't want to talk too long about that day there just because it was taking up too much of your podcast. But it's all, right. it's, later it's all on, relevant. Later on that day, I um, capsized again um, for a second time. And I was uh, I was on a, an unusual position on the boat in terms of I was trying to get in underneath to fix the steering to see what was wrong with it and see if I could fix it. And I was in a crouch position on the boat and I just stood up out of the crouch position because my legs were... Um, burning basically I'd been down there for ages and uh, as I was standing up I caught this flash of blue and white and it was a, a big giant wave swamping the boat and I knew I was going in like I'm this is capsized I'm going in like so I just not that I even thought that at the time but I instinctually um, reached behind me and grabbed the ca um, a handle on the cabin hatch there's a face called um, a bulkhead and I grabbed the bulkhead handle and I, I went in. So the boat flipped like that and I went in to just braced onto that um, handle and I went the full 180 degrees underneath the water, just hanging onto the boat with one hand saying, squeeze your grip, squeeze your grip, squeeze your grip. And it, it self-righted and it kind of lassoed me back onto the um, the the deck, uh, a very relieved man, as you can imagine. Now, all that being said, I, I had, um, 
I also had a harness. Uh, so I was attached to the boat anyway, but you can only control what you can control, right? So I, I you know, if if I had been separated from the boat, that's it. Like if you get separated out there, you're just you're not catching it. It doesn't even it doesn't matter even if you were Michael Phelps, you're not catching that boat, you know. So that that you I mean you could probably say that was the closest I felt. Like I, the most fearful I felt was definitely the day we spoke about already with the three capsizes and I was very worried about the expedition and um and the destabilization of my belief you know that, that that was very difficult um but the other day the the craziest day with the whale and the hanging on to the boat you're not sure if i was uh, particularly close to death i mean you could probably dress it up that way but it feels like a bit of a reach to me but it was it was definitely nuts like absolutely crazy so you're uh, basically hanging on to a boat whilst it's capsizing and yeah. all the while you don't even know how to swim that's right. That's right. Yeah. I'd say that's pretty close to death. Um, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, right? Like middle of the Atlantic, wild storm, um, underneath the boat, hanging on one hand and I'm not a swimmer. Um, yeah, I mean, you can, you can, you can, but I, I felt in control, I suppose yeah. is the thing I'm trying to say. Um, do you, do you contemplate death? Are you, are you one of these people who contemplates it? On a I do. Regular yeah. Basis? yeah. Uh, but you know, whenever it comes up for me, you know, I think it's, uh, it gives good direction and it, it's a good reset. If you feel like you're coming off the path or, you know, a little bit, um, if you feel a little bit confused or don't have clarity around where you're going, I think, you know, just thinking about it, um, it um, you know, gives really good, it's, a, it's an energy inducer for me and it gives good direction around, um, well, what's important, what's mm -hmm. important to you and are you working towards those things? Because, you know, life is life right and it's chaotic and it can get busy and you can it's can easy enough to come um off the, the 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 focus can wean a little bit or can get lost in the the um day-to-day -day living you know so uh Sometimes, if that is the case, I, I have no problem thinking about it and contemplating it. And uh, it really does give huge energy towards um, uh, what I want to do in life and, and then to go after it. Because, I mean, it's 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 one of the um, only uh, facts that we know. Mm. Um, it's one of the only truths that we know for sure that um, it's coming to an end Um we don't know what happens after that. And for me, it doesn't really matter. I'm going to find out, right? But um, that's for sure it's happening and you're going into the ground and spirit's going to leave your body. So have you done everything? Have you tried to live life to the best of your ability? Have you searched out things that are important and meaningful for you? So yeah, I, I, I enjoy doing that. Yeah, we, we you talk about coming to an end and then there's coming to the end of that epic challenge of crossing this monstrous ocean and one of the visions that you <coughs> held held on to to help you through those difficult times was you coming into Galway on on the boat mm. however it wasn't to be as such you know it eventually happened but in a roundabout way you yeah. you, you crashed into Ireland yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> quite quite the entry how did how did that ending affect you I was, you know, I've thought about it a lot over the last 15 months or so. Um, and uh, it's only on deep analysis I can see that there was nothing I could do about it. It was just a, t a case of um, bad timing, really. Wrong place, wrong time. Um, 
my immediate so my immediate um uh, emotion my immediate feeling my immediate thought when i hit that um when i hit the rocks in furbo was failure like i felt i'd failed after all of the fight and all of the struggle to get to that point um i just couldn't believe it ended that way because i as you said in your question i had this um vision i had this you know important driving uh, energy inducing vision that i was trying to attain and um that's that was the way it had to be for me and and having been driven onto the rocks in the storm and be there listening to uh, the rocks churn up my beloved boat this you know valiant steed that had carried me across the ocean so stoically and determinedly it was it was heartbreaking like because i just loved that boat you know uh, and here she was and i there's nothing i could do but i put her in that position to a certain extent and there was nothing i could do about it and you know i, I just it, it, there was so much of that was not how i wanted it to end so immediately it was failure like and it wasn't until you know i talked the next day i went home um i got to spend a few hours with roselle in the middle of the night and then um we uh, the next morning i was just talking to like people who are closely involved in the project macdara and uh Rizal, and and they're like what are you talking about like can i you know i just couldn't see that perspective until that point you know um and and they're right it was you know, of course it wasn't failure you know but that's that's immediately what i felt um it was far from failure it was um it was an extraordinary achievement um and what was really important about it was what i talked about earlier is that is how i behaved that's what was really important to me you know and uh furbo rock is as galway as the docks you know so <laughs> i wanted to row from um new york to galway and i rode from new york to galway what did I miss out on? And that was a really important question that I asked myself. Okay, what did you miss out on in not getting the finish you wanted by not rowing into the docks? And as far as I can see, the only thing I missed out on was the huge emotional high, you know, of of finally arriving to the point where I wanted to get to and what that might have felt like. And and then the question I asked, can you live without that? And I can live without that for everything else it gave me. I can live without that, no problem, you know. So, yeah. yeah. The ocean just showed you no mercy. I mean, you're out there for 112 days yeah. and you battled it and she... She fucking threw it at you, and <laughs> <I> think, <laughs> even even as you're coming close to Ireland, she goes, "Ah, fuck you now!" Yeah, and throws you up against the rocks. Yeah. I think there's a deep <laughs> life lesson in that. Yeah. You know, it's 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 not over um, till it's over, and um, the, the, yeah, there was nothing I could do about it. So um, so I don't really yeah. kind of spend. Well, I, I did spend a lot of time thinking about it, and when I realized, I I kind of looked at it from every angle. Could I have done this? Could I have done that? And um yeah you know so um so it's all good in my mm. um in my mind what did you leave behind on that boat um great question i i feel that these expeditions are um above anything else like their their journeys of um their journeys into the depth of me 
they're not, I'm not trying to cast aside, at least I, I don't feel like this ocean row was something that I was trying to, you know, leave parts of myself or cut out parts of myself or, you know, cast away masks. Like I feel I'm at a place now where I've, I've done so much of that work myself that it's it's I here I am this is me I'm all I'm I I I I'm, I'm endeavoring to live to what's important and meaningful to me I'm 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 trying to be as authentic as I can mm -hmm. and it's about it's just about deepening those deepening those um, values and deepening those characteristics and deepening my um, human capacities and and learning through that so I don't I don't. I don't, I don't connect with, you know, when I search in my mind, you know, for, for leaving behind anything, I don't, I don't connect with, with the, that phrase, you know, I don't think it was something that happened out there. Mm. But you had certain expectations before you took this voyage on. When you started with Gussie, there was the, there was the goal of doing this at record time. You yeah. lost Gussie and then your expectations are somewhat squandered. Mm. Do you, did it, meet or exceed expectations that you would have had before you started this journey? Oh, it far exceeded them. You know, I like the, 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 the thing with like world records and, um, timeframes and all that, they're kind of the fluff to the essence of the thing. And, and they're to a certain extent, they're a little bit needed when you're trying to raise awareness and raise funds, you know, for what you're doing. But, uh, in the, in the in the most important look the most important vision of the whole project they're not really important at all like important thing is the, the what you go through you know and 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 that the first thing is that you step into something that is difficult and challenging and fearful um like that's a huge uh, that's courage to me um, and that's living courageously. So that's the most, that's uh, an important step. And then it's how you act when you're out there and you're stressed and you're through, going through the mill and you're struggling. So like it, there's, there's real depths to it that, you know, things like world records and even, even the, the achievement of rowing an ocean, like it's fantastic and all that, but it doesn't, it doesn't serve me, you know, in my life. Like, whereas all those other things, they serve me in the day to day, like, you know, that deepening of yourself, deepening of your characteristics, sharpening of your values. Like those are the things that, you know, make me live in a contented, um, peaceful, uh, harmonious internal world. And that's the thing I have to spend, well, at least every waking moment in for till the day I die. So that's the most important thing for me, you know, and you know, I can live without never, you know, um, never having set a world record to row across an ocean. And did, have you, have you seen how this experience has now affected the people in your life or affected how you show up to the people in your life? Have you came off that boat as a, would you have come off that boat as a, as a different man? A little bit, you know, just deepened, just, you know, um, I would have for sure, like you just can't not, you know, like the the levels of self respect and self belief and self trust you gain by going through those um, going through those situations and that expedition as a whole like it's just it's extraordinary like there's you know you come off and you have a deep security within yourself and and that's um, invaluable you know 
you know, I, 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 there's, there's nothing I believe I can't do because I've done everything. You know? But it's only, but it's only through the doing I know that. You know, it's only through um, putting myself into these situations. You know, throwing, my, as I said before, throwing myself into the fire of life and finding way through it. That's what builds really um, genuine and sincere levels of self belief. Um, and that's a nice thing to walk around with, you know, I'm, I, unless you ask me the question, you probably never really, well, I don't know if you'd know it or not, but like, it's, it's a very, um, it's a very, um, peaceful place to operate out of that. You know, that if you set your intention on something that there's a high chance that you can achieve it, whatever it is, you know, so those, that what it gives you on those deep levels is, is extraordinarily rewarding. Um, and important. So you've uh, finished off that chapter of your life. What's the next chapter <clears throat> involved? Um, so sharing, I suppose, I feel a duty. Like it's like I've, I've, <laughs> for twenty five years, I've used myself as a human guinea pig, trying to understand the what it is um, and how I do what I do and, and why I do what I do. And it's only in the last kind of six or seven years or, or, or less that I've started to put some shape and language on that. Um, and I'm very, I feel a, a deep duty to share it because of how it makes my everyday existence, how it uh, has deeply affected how I experience life. Um, and if I can, if I can help people operate out of a similar, if not, you know, you know, the same place or deeper place. Um, well, I think that's a, a very meaningful thing to do with your life. So um, I think the next big project for me are, well, I have a couple on, but um, there's one called um, the Iron Mind Institute. And that's a, um, an experience-based thing where um, we've created this forging kind of um, uh, hopefully deeply impactful experience where we put people through long duration um, endurance events. But we teach them how to organize their psychology when they're going through it by guiding them through it by being their voice of awareness when they find themselves in those states of um, deep negativity and doubt and insecurity we're a little voice on their shoulder when they can't access that sh that voice right now they will be able but we need to make that connection between the action and the reward right so we're the people who while they're going through the chaos, we're, we can, as coaches, we just lead them with our, our voice of awareness, kind of almost leading them to concentrate on what's within their control in that moment. Because that's all it is. It's about how you organize your psychology, how you organize your thinking in those moments. And that creates these paradigm shifts, you know, because you've, you realize that just by thinking a certain way when you're in these deeply disturbed and destabilized and negative situations just by thinking if you can think a certain way you can change your experience of that state and you continue to perform and then you finish whatever it may be let's say you finish the crucible and you're kind of reflecting on that and you're like fuck I didn't think I was going to get through that and all I did was just change a little bit about what I thought about and it completely changed my state and I was able to 
those create these paradigm shifts. And once you have deep paradigm shifts, you realize you're, you can see, you see lie differently. It, it, it brings a freedom to your life that wasn't there before because you can see your potential open up inside you. If I can do that, fucking hell, take away the physical pain. What am I going to be able to do with my life, you know, in my family, in my career? So that's that's a big, big uh, project for me, the Iron Mind Institute, and particularly the crucible. We call it a crucible experience, the crucible elements of it. Uh, I really want to try to impact people while, uh, from what I've learned and um, while I have the opportunity. Brilliant, man. And where do we find more information about this? Uh, so ironmindinstitute.com or um, you follow me on uh, like socials and that like at my the social I'm most um, prevalent on is probably Instagram so it's at Oldstock and I'm, I'm always posting stuff up there about the Iron Mind Institute so yeah um, and we hope to we have a batch of crucibles coming in April and uh, we hope to have some real like um uh, we hope to have the visuals to show people what we're, you know, what we're trying to create there off the back of that and, and really get it out there and hopefully get it taken off and, and, uh, and changing people's lives, impacting genuinely, sincerely impacting people's lives. Um, because as we all know, there's a lot of rubbish out there, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and people are craving something real and true and human and deeply authentic and and that's what we feel we've created so yeah yeah and it comes from a man who's got fucking skin in the game for sure plenty <laughs> of it years of it yeah, yeah yeah so i mean who who better than to lead these men to uh to their optimal potential so damien thanks so much Gavin. this has been an honor and a privilege and uh i'm excited for what's to come for you and the next chapter in your life and thank you for all the good work you do it's so important in this comfort crisis that we currently live in mm, thank you very much great to have you and, and thanks for your great questions uh, there's questions there and I get asked a lot of questions that I've never been asked so fair play to you thank you Daniel Cheers.